Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So joining us today is one of the greatest public intellectuals of our time, He's called Richard Dawkins. Scientism is not a word that I would use myself. It's a dirty word. It's used by people who are critical of scientists who they see as going too far. You will know him from many bestsellers. Amongst the most famous are The Selfish Gene and The God Delusion, but he has written many other books. Indeed, there's a new one out shortly um, called Books Do Furnish a Life, which is a celebration of some of his science writing uh, across a whole load of different topics. So let's start with the new book. I was uh, looking through it and it really, it almost seems like a, a claiming of space beyond what people sometimes like to put science in. It, 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 there's a lot of beautiful writing, there's talk of, of, of beauty, of magic, of other parts of life that we don't normally associate with science. Do you, is that partly what the book was about? Well, I suppose so, yes. It's about the literature of science, and uh, it's actually just a collection of my book-related writings. So over the years, I've done a lot of book reviewing, a lot of writing of forwards to books, a few afterwards to books. So anything to do with books, um, Gillian Summerscales and I gathered together under the sort of umbrella of science as literature. There's some passages in it. Um, I've got just a quote here where you're talking about the beauty of nature, the streamlined beauty of a swimming whale, the muscular tautness of a stalking big cat, the iridescent extravaganza of peacock or scarlet macaw. I mean, this is almost sort of transcendent. Would you sign up to that adjective? Well, I'm not sure. I, I, I certainly feel that science is a good vehicle for poetic writing and so in in i mean you the passage you read there i suppose is aspires to be to be poetic and i do from time to time but in general i feel that scientists ought to write in a way that's uh, attractive uh, readable clear and sometimes even poetic there's a moment in the uh, writings where you talk about scientism 
um, and your sense that that's a, a notion that sometimes reeled out in what you describe as a slightly snobbish way, um, where it seems like people are trying to sort of treat science as if it only exists on the rational sphere. What do you mean by scientism in that context, and how would you defend from it? Scientism is not a word that I would use myself. It's a dirty word. It's used by people who are critical of scientists who they see as going too far and trying to usurp territory which properly belongs to other fields. Um, so you need to ask somebody who actually uses the word scientism what they mean by it. Um, what I understand by it is something negative, which is sometimes applied to me and which I disown. Um, I, I think that science actually is the only way to understand what is true about the real world. I do not think that science is the right way to decide what is right and wrong or what is aesthetically pleasing. That's a, that's a matter for other, others to judge. So perhaps we actually had an essay by a philosopher called Matthew Crawford on Unheard recently about scientism. And I think his definition was when science moves from a mode of inquiry into a source of authority. Um, and he's, his worry was that particularly during these past pandemic months, there's been a sense that calls to science have been used to shut down debate in parts or maybe to establish moral virtue. Are you anxious about that at all? Well, I'd be surprised if it was used to establish moral virtue, but in the case of the pandemic, uh, it really is about time we started listening to science. I mean, science is the way to discover the right answer to uh, anything about the real world. And that, of course, includes how to deal with a serious epidemic like the one we're now going through. So we really do need to listen to science. And science should not, in this case, be accused of overstretching itself. So when we get, for example, here in the UK, we've, we've obviously had this new cadre of sort of scientist celebrities that we've all become familiar with from our TV sets every evening, um, who are epidemiologists who are suddenly now, you know, letting us know whether freedoms will be restored or not. Do you think there is a threshold, even if we haven't crossed it, when science starts becoming too political? Epidemiology is the subject you need to know in order to make these decisions. The decisions uh, are taken by politicians uh, with scientific advice. Um, and it's, it's, I suppose, can be a bit disconcerting when scientists disagree. But of course, uh, they're bound to disagree because they're, they're looking at, this, at, at, at different, different data, looking at the same data with different spectacles on. Scientists don't always agree about everything. But there is no other subject other than science which is going to tell you what the right thing to do is from an epidemiological point of view. Well, if it, I suppose I meant if it becomes a, a moral or a, a societal question, really, whether what degree of risk or mortality one is prepared to live with in exchange for what kind of freedoms or way of life. I mean, that, I suppose, then is a political rather than a scientific That's question. That's a good point. And that is a political decision because you have to balance um, what, this, what science tells you about the risks, as you say, with um, social costs, for example, the, the, the social cost of not being able to associate with your friends and relatives, the social cost, well, the economic cost of industry shutting down, of not being able to go into shops. Commerce um, is, is badly affected. So these are all societal questions um, which have to be, as you say, balanced up against the risks which science, which, and which only science can tell you about. And has your 
overall sense of, over the year, last year and a half been that we've got that balance about right in Western democracies, or have you been anxious about it at all? Say, I, I'm not a good person to judge that. I mean, I think some countries have got it righter than others, and some countries have got it very wrong. Um, it, it, it is a very difficult matter, and I, I do sympathise with politicians who have to take these difficult decisions. They're getting advice from scientists and, and, and rightly taking advice from scientists. On the other hand, they have to make decisions about the effects on the economy, the effects on social life and things. It is a very difficult matter, and, and some countries have got it better than others. I wonder what your thoughts are on the kind of evolutionary impact of this new departure. It feels like it might be significant if we move from lots of individuals being selfish in the evolutionary sense and having different risk appetites and everybody working in their community or family or individual versus the new fashion, which is that you know, a, a central expert group will decide on behalf of the whole of society what level of risk is permissible. That, evolutionarily, that seems quite novel. Yes. Well, I'm not sure about novel. I mean, it, it, it's true that, that in, in individual decisions people take, like, I'm not going to get vaccinated because I don't care or, or, or it doesn't worry me or I'm young and therefore I'm unlikely to get it seriously and so on, have to be balanced against the social cost, in this case, epidemiological cost. Um, what, one of the main lessons that epidemiology has taught us is that when you have an epidemic, uh, there is a critical number, critical mass of people who, if you can get them vaccinated, then the epidemic will not spread. And so it is not a matter of, a, of self-interest. It's, it's not, it should not be a matter of self-interest because when you decide not to wear a mask, when you decide not to get vaccinated, it's not just a matter of your own decision for your own welfare, or your own risk. You are actually risking other people if you do not um, do, the, do the social thing and get vaccinated or wear a mask, whatever the advice happens to be. So would you be of the view then, those kinds of things, let's say vaccination, it would be morally acceptable to make them compulsory on that basis? Or do you feel that that would be a case of sort of science going too far. Where, where would you stand well, on that one? a case of politics going too far. I, I think that, that actual compulsion, go to jail if you're not vaccinated, I wouldn't do that. But I think it would be a good idea to explain to people that it, it really is a moral responsibility. It's a bit like explaining to people, it's not, it's not quite like driving on the proper side of the road, left or right side of the road, um, but it's kind of like that. Um, it, it, it's a social responsibility that many people simply don't understand. Especially in America, you'll hear people saying, well, I'm prepared to take the risk. That's not the point. It's not the point whether you're prepared to take the risk. The point is that you're risking other people's lives. And without resorting to compulsion, I think very strong persuasion, put it that way. Perhaps if we, if we um, zoom out a little bit, um... There's a, a, a conversation in your book between you and Christopher Hitchens back in 2011, um, when you're discussing whether America is in danger of becoming a theocracy. Um, and I wonder what your reflections are on how things have changed since then, um, and whether the new trends in America are the same as they were, or whether the theocratic threat comes from different quarters. Do you, do you think we're in a different world than we were then? I think things are getting better in America. Um, 
the, the trends reflected in the polls suggest that things are getting better. The number of people who do not subscribe to a religion, the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, so-called nuns, um, are now up to about 25%, which is about as many as any particular religious denomination in America. So that's pretty good news. It's not news which has reached the eyes of politicians necessarily, because they still seem to feel the need to um, to suck up to religious special interest groups and to ignore the non-believers in America. But statistically, things are going in the right direction, I think, since that interview with Christopher Hitchens. I wonder what your response would be to the idea that some of the religious impulse um, that was more talked about at that period um, is now having more secular outlets. Um, you, you, you know, the, in terms of cultural questions, sometimes it seems like the secular extreme atheist part of society is feeling almost religious fervor about a new set of issues. Do you, do you observe that? Uh, I'm not sure quite what you mean by that. Do, do, do you mean that, that, that atheism is becoming a religion in, in its own right, something like that? Well, just that, I mean, I'm not sure if you ever read um, that there's a, a famous blog post by Scott Alexander, which dissected the so-called new atheism um, era and tried to make the case that some of those uh, atheist plus um, activists have sort of progressed into being more social justice um, activists now. And there's been a sort of transfer of that. And I, I suppose that's the question, really, whether some of the, the atheist movement has become a political movement in that sense. I'm interested in science. I'm not interested in politics or sociology. Okay. It is often said that some very secular issues these days have something of a religious fervor. Um, you know, and, and you know, with, there are writers like Tom Holland, who is a, uh, a writer we have uh, published here at Unheard, who would make the case that um, it's a kind of post-Christian inheritance and that even some of the atheist movement is, has a, a post-Christian atmosphere. Do you, how do you respond uh, to that? Well, by by post-Christian, you could mean we've given up Christianity, or it could mean that we have our historical roots in Christianity. Which I, I think, think the sec Yeah, the second, I suppose, he, he means. Um, yes, I think that's probably undeniable. I mean, the, we, we, we come from, the, those of us who do actually come, come from, from a Christian heritage, undeniably do. And so the historical roots of where we're coming from are in Christianity. That, I suppose, is undeniable. That's not in any sense a defense of Christianity. It's not in any sense meaning that, that you can't be an atheist without being post-Christian, anything like, like that. But it's just a, a historical fact, which I suppose is mildly interesting, not very. Let me open the floor to you then and, and ask, of these points, in, of the, the essays you've collected, which ones, do you, which ones stand out most of all? And what do you think, what do, what do you want people to to oh, right. well, okay. hear um, about. Yes, there's one of Edward Wilson, um, the famous entomologist and um, evolutionist and ecologist. Um, and it's a very critical, one of the more critical reviews, um, because I think that Edward Wilson um, went astray. I mean, a brilliant man, a brilliant career, but I think that he, um, in this towards the end of his career, um, went astray by rejecting um, 
what I regard as one of the more fundamental um, theories of evolution of social life, that of W.D. Hamilton, kin selection. Um, balance that with a very positive one. Could you, which just, is, could you tell us about that just for a moment? That, oh, that, yes, what what yes. did he get wrong on kin selection? Oh, okay. Well, um, kin selection, as you, you, you may know, is, is, is the theory of um, uh, social life based on genes. So animals are expected in the theory of natural selection, theory of, of neo-Darwinism, to behave altruistically towards any other individuals who share their genes. And this is why we have parental care. Parental care seems obvious. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But parental care is only a special case of caring for other individuals who share the same genes. Um, caring for siblings, caring for nephews and nieces is just like parental care. It's just that there are more practical uh, opportunities to, to care for your offspring than there are to care for your siblings or your nephews and nieces. But genetically speaking, it's the same thing. Now, that's the theory which was developed by W.D. Hamilton in the 1960s and is the foundation of really the whole of modern behavioral ecology, the whole of modern ethology, sociobiology. And it was central to Wilson's great book, Sociobiology, in 1975. But then more recently, uh, in the 2000s, he has rejected all that and started talking about group selection uh, in a very unhelpful way, I think. So that, that's the basis of 
Um, so what, and group selection is, is different because it ignores the genetic component. Or... Sort of, yes. It, 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 it says that the, the reason why animals are altruistic is that groups that contain altruistic individuals survive better than groups that don't. And that's kind of true if groups are kin groups, but it's more um, theoretically economical to go right to the level of the genes and to say that, that animals, or rather actually genes care for copies of themselves, which leads to animals caring for other animals, which contain copies of the same genes. If we apply those ideas to the human species, um, the idea of kin selection and looking after your, um, your, your gene, genetic in-group, um, is that something that we should be worried about? Or is that something that is just a, a fact of human life? Do you think we need to mitigate against it? How do we apply that to humans? Well, humans are a difficult species to deal with because um, we've departed in cultural evolution. It's, I mean, modern society has departed a long way from the environment in which our genes were naturally selected. Um, if you look at uh, primitive peoples like the Anamamo in the Brazilian jungle, or like um, the, the, the Kalahari, the Khoisan, um, then you see something much closer to uh, what you would expect on the theory of kin selection. Um, another of the essays in the book is about Napoleon Chagnon, who was a great anthropologist who studied the Yanomamo in Brazil. And he was somewhat unusual among anthropologists at the time in that he bothered to learn up some Darwinism. And he applied his Darwinism um, to the Yanomamo and showed how beautifully um, kin selection, Darwinism generally, explains the behavior of the so-called fierce people. Um, so um, they live in in village groups and they have they're extremely aggressive they fight over over women they do all the kinds of things which a, a darwinian might expect but in modern societies like ours we don't see that in any simple way there are disciplines like uh, called evolutionary psychology which in, try to interpret modern society in those terms with a certain amount of success but it has to be done in a rather clever, um, indirect way, rather than in the more direct way that you can apply it to societies like the Khoisan or, or the Yanomamo. I guess, I, I guess what I meant is that it's a, people get very anxious if you talk about um, kin selection in a, in a broader sense um, amongst humans, because it feels like you're edging up against some sort of ethnicities or... or tribes or um, those kind of divisions that we seem to have, yes. we, we've been working hard to, to downweight. Yes, I think, it's, I think it is very difficult and I think you have to tread very carefully. Um, I, I think it's probably safest uh, not to apply these ideas in any kind of naive or simplistic way. You have to be very sophisticated about it. If we uh, look at the bigger picture, you mentioned how um, America has become a lot more secular since that a conversation you had with Christopher Hitchens. The UK is also showing extraordinary uh, falls, a fall off in religious um, allegiance. Um, is, would the hope, in your view, be that that falls to zero? Or is there, a, 
is there a kind of dream scenario here? Uh, I, yes, to me, the hope would be that it falls to zero. Christopher Hitchens disagreed with that. He rather um, paradoxically, um, he denied that he was a contrarian. But I think this is a rather contrarian point of view. He liked having religious people around so that he could argue with them. And, and um, I, I, I prefer uh, religious belief to fall to zero, but that does not mean that I like to, to get rid of all the cultural um, baggage that goes with it, because that includes beautiful music, beautiful art, beautiful poetry. Uh, um, I mean, I, I would not wish to be without uh, the B minor mass or, or Mozart's Requiem. The, these are wonderful, wonderful pieces of, of, of music and the same goes for great art, of course. And great literature. The Bible itself is, is great literature, at least in the in the authorized version. Um, you cannot appreciate English literature unless you're well up in the Bible, because so many of the allusions, the, the proverbial references, and things come straight from the Bible. Uh, the God delusion. My book, The God Delusion, has I think about three pages of um, proverbial or um, sayings, uh, which come straight from the Bible and which you actually need to have have some familiarity with the Bible in order to understand and appreciate English literature. Would it also be quite a new experiment for our species to be an atheist species in that sense? I mean, I guess you or I couldn't predict what exactly the, the side effects of that might be. Is there any chance, do you think, that religion actually had a kind of a safety mechanism and, and, and contained certain impulses that if we didn't have it at all, might come out more dangerously elsewhere? It's possible. I can't think of any very specific examples of that. Um, you're, well, I think politics you're... would, might be one, yeah. you know, people get. Well, um, I don't know about politics. I mean, in America, certainly politicians pay lip service to being re religious and they always say, God bless America at the end of every speech and they, and they mention God at every possible opportunity. Um, British politicians don't do that. Um, they, some of them may be religious, many of them are not, but it doesn't seem to enter into um, their debates very much. Uh, certain particular issues, maybe it does, maybe um, certain moral issues where people will appeal to uh, religious standards, religious ethics, but we don't, we certainly do not need religion in order to get ethical standards. We, we've got um, moral philosophy, which is a very highly developed discipline um, and and has many good things to say. Um, we can get our morals, we certainly should get our morals from other places than religion. If we got them from religion, we, they'd be pretty, pretty unpleasant. How do you think that's going so far, our collective attempt as a species to get our morals from other places than religion in the most recent 10 years where it's shown the most dramatic decline. I mean, can we make any deductions how well that experiment is going? Well, I think that there is definitely, over historical time, a trend towards getting more what I would call moral, what you would probably call moral. Uh, we're getting nicer. Um, things are getting better from a moral point of view. Um, Steven Pinker documents this massively uh, in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, we, we, we no longer have public executions, public torturings. We, don't, we no longer have the stocks where we throw rotten eggs at, at, at people. 
um, we no longer um, torture cats for the sheer amusement. Um, bullfighting is is going out. Um, so there are there are strong trends in in what I think you and I would both agree are the right direction. Um, and these are secular trends. Um, religious people have possibly contributed, for example, to the abolition of slavery, but that was in the teeth of other religious people. Slavery is sanctioned in the Bible after all. So things like the, the abolition of slavery, um, the decline of racism, um, the, the decline of sexism, all these good trends uh, are, I think, in the main secular trends. Uh, so there's a there's a interesting dialogue with Stephen Pinker in your uh, book as well. Um, I, I I wonder are there are there points where you take issue with him or or his kind of ultra optimistic view of the progress of our species? Are there points where you would be more hesitant about um, how well it's I all going? Right. I mean, he he he's one of the great optimists and he's remarkably articulate and well informed about it. Uh, Matt Ridley is another of uh, 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 the people that I talk to who is, is another celebrated optimist coming from a more economic point of view. Um, I, I hesitate to be quite so optimistic as my friends, um, Steve Pinker and Matt Ridley. Um, but uh, what are you less optimistic about, I suppose? I'm, I'm keen to well, know if there are anything that's, that troubles you about. I suppose about. climate change. I mean, uh, um, I, I think um, Matt Ridley is, is um, optimistic as he believes that science can solve problems and always has solved problems and that big as, as big as the problems may seem to be at the present time um he has a kind of faith that that, that, that science will come through and solve those problems and i would like to believe that perhaps we need a bit of a dose of optimism but um i, I i'm not sure that i'm well enough informed actually to, to go as far as he does. So overall, do you feel that, um, you know, if you look around at the state of the world and the state of our species in a more general sense, you're not worried about the direction because, you know, we get a lot of guests on this show and we have a lot of people who really think we're in a difficult time, things are becoming more tribal. We've, I've heard people say that the era of rational thought is sort of dying away and we are returning to a more tribal way of thinking. Do you have sympathy with any of that anxiety? Well, put it this way, if, if, if I thought that was going to happen, I mean, if I, if, if I thought that the world was going to descend into, use a Churchillian phrase, a new dark age with a lack of rationality, I would be very, very upset indeed. Um, it's, I, can't, it's find, I find it hard to imagine a, a worse scenario, really, than that we should descend into superstition and and irrationality and um, lack of of scientific sense. Um, so I certainly hope that isn't happening. Um, I cannot believe it really is. If there are short term trends in the wrong direction, then let's hope they're they're short term. As for climate change, which is uh, which is I think a very serious problem. Anybody. Nobody would deny that that's a very serious problem. Um, and uh, if, if it is to be solved, it will be science that solves it. And uh, let's hope that it, that it does. But we, we must not be complacent. That's certainly true. 
So you would conclude with a note of cautious optimism, perhaps, Richard, that we, yeah. we needn't tear our hair out that the age of rationality is, is dead. That, that was a hope and, I, and, and a, very, a very strong hope. And, I, and I, I've got to be optimistic and believe that. Um, as for uh, climate change, I think we've got to take it very, very seriously and trust in science to, if, if anything can, sa can save us, science will. Richard Dawkins, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist and author, um, sharing some of his thoughts on a new book he's got coming out and much else. Thanks to him for joining and to you for watching. This was Lockdown TV. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.